There's a lot of music in the Bible. I think sometimes we don't realize how much of the Bible is written in poetic form. How much of the Bible was first sung or at least meant to be sung. Even uh, if you have your Bibles, if you could take them and turn to Luke chapter 1. Even as you go through the Christmas season, Luke 1 and Luke 2, these special times where words are kind of set apart and newer translations will mark those. You can kind of see indentation to recognize. Like this isn't just normal story. This is particularly written uh, in poetic fashion. We're going to look at a few of those over the next couple weeks. Some of these songs of Christmas. Particularly today, I want us to look at the song of Zechariah, which is such a song of promise. If we had time, we'd go through all 80 verses of the first chapter of Luke, but we don't have time. But I do want to look at a portion of this. Kind of set the stage. Zechariah is a priest and he and Elizabeth have a baby. And they call the baby's name John. He'll become known to us as John the Baptist. And Zechariah pens some lines, and they're really in poetic form. He pens some lines to help us understand the joy that he was feeling. And so I've asked Wayne Marsh to come up and read for us uh, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67. Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Thank you, Wayne. So Christmas means lots of things to lots of people, whether they're religious or not. Certainly, for a lot of people, it means rest at the end of a very busy year, time to catch your breath a little bit. For some, it's a season of charitable giving, kind of a way to give back, maybe Salvation Army or or other causes. For some, it's a time uh, just... Economics are very, very different sometimes in December. For some business owners, more is going to come in. They're going to depend on December. Some, sometimes it goes the other way. Certainly personal economics are affected as we spend and, and buy presents 
for Christmas and, and pay for travel and all sorts of things. For a lot of people, Christmas means friends and family and food and all the preparations that go along with that. For Christians, though, there, there are other things that Christmas means to us. Something we, we've sung about some of those this morning. So we begin to hear like Mary and Joseph and the manger, and those are things that we identify with, we resonate with, relating to Christmas. Talk about wise men and angels and shepherds in Bethlehem. I do wonder if there's an aspect of Christmas we sometimes forget that, that if we were to really dig deep into Luke 1 and Luke 2, we would see uh, some themes there that we might not have seen before. I'm, I'm a, a sucker, I've told you this before, I'm a sucker for a documentary, especially if it's a sports documentary. I'm just glued. And often they're taking things that I remember, I remember vaguely, but they're zeroing in on a specific aspect that I might have forgotten about, that I hadn't really put this and that together. And you, you begin to see things in different ways and, and kind of look back to it. I think if we would be dialed into Luke 1 and 2, we would see some things related to Christmas, perhaps in different ways. You see, the story of Christmas is one of deep waiting waiting on the Lord. It's a theme that is just woven throughout the Christmas stories that we have. We've looked at, really the month of November was spent looking at this subject of waiting. And I don't know any, like any storyline in the Bible where waiting is more critical to it as this one when it comes to waiting on the Messiah, this first Christmas. It's kind of a culmination of waiting. The hopes and fears of all the years are, are met in Jesus. A whole nation waits. And when we have Luke 1 and 2, it's like light is beginning to dawn. The waiting perhaps is over. We look back on the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we recognize there are what we've come to call like 400 silent years where it seemed like God wasn't speaking and there was a waiting. Like when, when are we going to hear from God again? And Zechariah opens his mouth and says in verse 67, I hope, it, I hope you keep it in front of you because we're going to look at several, several places here. 67, it says he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies. And just what's interesting about this prophecy is it's actually in the form of a song. It's in the form of, of a poem. It's a, it's a poetic prophecy. And he speaks. He's a priest and he's speaking for the people. He's speaking for the nation. And he's praising God. He's saying, blessed be the God of Israel because he's visited us. He's come to be where we are. He's, he's not left us. He's visited us and he's redeemed us. I just want to, I want to lean into what Zechariah is telling us. And when he speaks for the people, I want to hear that and see if we resonate with that. As we listen to Zechariah, we hear him speaking for people who have been waiting to inherit a promise so a promise was made to a people. And you hear in Zechariah just this longing to inherit it. I don't know how you think of God, but one of the ways we ought to think of God is a promise-making God. The Bible's filled with promises that he's made. But don't stop at a God who makes promises. Because he's not just a God who makes promises, he's a God who keeps promises. And he wants us to know him in that way. That he's a God who delivers. Listen to these verses. 
It says in verse 69 that there is there's a promise he made of a horn of salvation to come to his servant David. In verse 70, there's a promise that was made and kind of mediated through the holy prophets of old. And in verse 72, there was mercy promised to our fathers to remember the holy covenant. In verse 73, there's an oath that God swore to Abraham. Did you hear that? God, this promise-making God who delights in keeping his promises. He speaks, he promises, he swears, he makes oaths to his people and says, I am going to deliver on this. And Zechariah is filled with praise for God because those promises weren't empty. I would imagine you are much like me. I want to be known as someone who keeps my promises. Like it means something to me when, when I'm able to promise something to somebody then I'm able to deliver on that. I'm, pro- I'm able to promise to be a friend to somebody. And then when they call, I'm able to help them. Like that means something to me. I don't want to over-promise and then under-deliver. And likely you feel the same way. God never under- under-delivers on his promises. I think that we understand the meaning of Christmas. It's for the world. Not just for like one people. I think sometimes in our effort to say it's good news for all the people, we forget how good news, how good of news it was to the nation of Israel. And that's exactly what Zechariah is speaking to. So he calls out names. Kind of takes us through, if you will, takes us through the Old Testament. He says in verse, uh, verse 73, there's an oath that he swore to Abraham. Like, what did he promise to Abraham? What did God promise to Abraham that Zechariah is now saying, God's going to keep this promise? Well, if you go all the way back to Genesis 12, you'll recognize that the promise made to Abraham is that your descendants will bless the entire earth. In you, all families of the earth will be blessed. And he confirms that promise and repeats that promise. And he, he swears upon that promise. And now what Zechariah is, what Zechariah is saying is it's, it's coming to pass. But it's not, it's not just Abraham. He, he speaks in verse 72 of our fathers of old. Who are these fathers? It's the rest of Genesis, Isaiah and Jacob and Joseph. It's, it's Moses in the book of Exodus. It's Joshua, all these fathers, uh, kind of the patriarchs of the country. And there are promises that God made to those fathers. And now he's saying, God, God's not going to go back on those promises. He's keeping those promises. He's showing mercy. He mentions Abraham, he mentions the fathers, and then he mentions David. That this horn of salvation, and a horn is a, a picture of strength, that this, this display of salvation is going to come to David just like God had promised. What had God promised David? Do you remember? God had promised David that one of his descendants would be a king, and that kingdom would extend. And there would be no no end to that rule. That a son of David would rule and power, not just Israel, but rule the world. Now what Zechariah is saying is, I'm seeing the prophecy come come to fulfillment. God, you made a promise. And you're keeping your promise. We've waited for this. He even refers to the holy prophets. I mean, this isn't just a generic story. This is something that a whole nation had waited for. He talks about the holy prophets. So these prophets 
said that there's coming a new age when Messiah comes. There's going to be this new era that's going to dawn on, on, on us. And in this new era, we're going to have a heart that's going to be totally reshaped instead of this, this stubborn heart that's just made like stone and rock and it's just not able to be penetrated. We're going to have a heart of flesh. It's going to be a heart that is cleansed, a heart that's ready to say, yes, Lord, whatever you want. And that's why Isaiah looks forward to that age and says, there's going to be coming uh, one who is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. That's why Micah would make the prophecy in in Micah chapter 5 that Bethlehem is going to be the place where this king is born. That's why Malachi would say, oh, we long for the day when the hearts of the children are turned to the fathers and the fathers to the children. We're longing for that day. And now all those prophecies are being fulfilled. Zechariah is being led to worship because all that's becoming a reality. The plan, he can see it being set in motion. First John the Baptist will be born, then Jesus will be born. They've waited a long time to inherit the prophecy, inherit the promise. As we listen to Zechariah though, we have this theme of a promise, but we have another theme that emerges. That is he is speaking for people who live in a mixed up world. So however beautiful Christmas cards are that kind of picture nativity scene, kind of Photoshop out everything that would be like undesirable to look at, we get no Photoshop in Luke chapter 1. I mean, here is Zechariah talk about this mixed up world. He speaks in verse 70, 71 of needing to be saved from their enemies, those that actually hate them. So he's a priest and he goes to the temple every day. And part of going to the temple is a reminder of the Roman rule and the Romans hate him. He talks in verse 74 about being delivered from the hand of of our enemies. So there's physical issues, enemies, but then there's there's spiritual danger as well because he's, he's looking forward to the day when there's knowledge of salvation in verse 77 to knowledge of salvation and forgiveness of sin. He recognizes that all is not well with Israel. It's a mixed up world. It's a complicated world. Then he looks forward to the day. He says, God has come and he's speaking for people who not just feel it physically and spiritually, but emotionally. He says there, there are those in verse 79 that are sitting in darkness, that are walking in the shadow of death. Pretty much everywhere they looked, It didn't seem like a Hallmark movie. It seemed like a a very, very difficult time with no, nothing on the horizon. But then Zechariah says, no, but something is on the horizon. God's visiting his people. God's redeeming his people. Imagine he thought if ever there was a need for something to change in the world, like right now would be a good time. As we listen to Zechariah, we get an idea of those that are waiting to inherit a promise. He's speaking for people who are just, every day they're looking at a mixed up world that they have to live in. But we hear something else emerge, and that's in Zechariah. We see that he is speaking for a people who desire to be free to serve God. Listen to Zechariah's song. I mean, in verse 74, he says, we want to be free, but but what do we want to be free to do? And what will that freedom bring? 
freedom to live however we want to. No, listen, in verse 74, he says, we want to be free so that we could, in, in being delivered from the hand of our enemies, we might serve God without fear. And we might serve him in holiness and righteousness all our days. The word serve there could, could easily be translated like worship. It's that kind of service. It's the service offered to a God that says, here's my life. Much like what Chris was talking about. Here's what I have. I give it to you. Zechariah's pouring out his heart. He said, oh, if we could be free to love you, to serve you without fear. If we could be free to, and, and I wonder if he thought about this every time he went into that temple to offer sacrifices. What a, what a bloody job the priest had. To offer those sacrifices and then another one and another one and another one and Maybe he longed for the day when the prophets would come and, and what, what the prophets had talked about, that that day would come where they'd be free. The sins of the people would be dealt with permanently. You know, I read Zechariah again. I don't just hear a song of an ancient Hebrew priest. I actually think we live in that same world. If I could say it this way, the spiritual DNA that Zechariah had, we have. We wait as well for the coming of the Lord. Not his first coming, but his second coming. You see, in, in, in all of Israel, we, we understand some things better than they understood when Christ came the first time because we have the whole New Testament explaining what was going on in the first coming of our Lord. We can see that Jesus was coming first as a humble servant, but when he comes again, it'll be his conquering king and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And, and so we have the same kind of desire, that same waiting and longing for Jesus to come, much like the, much like the Israelites had. We're waiting on a promise, aren't we? So Jesus gathers his disciples in the upper room. Imagine yourself there and Jesus says, I'm about to go away. But if I go, I'm going to come back to you. I'm going to bring you to myself. That where I am, you'll be also. We say, even so, come Lord Jesus. We want you to come. We want God to visit us once again. That's why James worded it like this. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. James 5, he says, see how the farmer waits? Being, he's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. He's patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. The coming of the Lord is at hand. We're waiting. We're saying, Lord, help us to endure. Help us to be patient for your coming. First Thessalonians and Peter and Corinthians and Revelation is this heartbeat like, come back, Lord, come back. We live waiting for that promise. We also live in a very mixed up world, don't we? Jesus, says, Jesus told us we would. In John chapter 16, he says, in the world you will have tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. But you'll have tribulation. Paul would say, it, if you want to live godly, all who live godly will, will face persecution. We live in a mixed up world. This present darkness, this evil age. I'm looking through a news feed and I see two bombings in Istanbul yesterday. I'm seeing a, a, a church in Nigeria collapses and dozens of our brothers and sisters are dead. This is a mixed up world. I see a, an amber alert 
for a 14-year-old girl that grew up close to where, where I grew up. It just begins to resonate. We live in a mixed-up, messed-up world. We find ourselves in that, and we, we long for this day. Second Peter 3 describes it so well. According to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, where righteousness camps out, where crime and injustice are eliminated. We're longing for that day. We hope along with Zechariah. We desire to be free to serve God. That's why Paul would say in Romans 7, like, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? I mean, I'm, who's going to set me free? And that's why Romans 8 comes so strong. We are more than conquerors through him. He's the one who will set us free. Thanks be to God who gives us victory, who sets us free from, from oppression so that we can serve him with our whole heart. We're free to do that. We find ourselves in this same world of Zechariah waiting, and waiting can be a real struggle. And what, what I also see when I read the story of Zechariah is that sometimes, sometimes we wait poorly. Sometimes we're not very patient. Sometimes we don't wait too well. See, what I don't want you to get is the wrong impression of Zechariah that all he did was just pen songs for the church to sing all day long because he just rode the spiritual high and never worried and never doubted and just had lots of great things to say about God all the time. We didn't read earlier in Luke chapter 1 that Zechariah gets this announcement from Gabriel that he and Elizabeth are going to have a child. And his first impulse is to doubt. His first impulse is to go, ah, I'm not sure I believe that. In his waiting, he's, he's not so sure. So over the years of waiting and over the years of praying, he's, his patience is worn thin. And in that moment, he's, he's not quite sure. He would be, I think, very similar to most of us. We have this mixture of faith, and sometimes it looks really good, and doubt, and sometimes that doesn't look so good. And we want to wait on God, and we want to trust him, and, and, and we have these things that we're counting on him, but it's sometimes we, we, we don't always see him working. Doubt fueled questions with Zechariah. That's where we live in a world where things don't resolve easily. We feel pain. We feel lots of frustration. We have short-term setbacks. We have long-term anxiety, long-term hurt, and long-term loneliness. Basically, where we live in life isn't always like we pictured it would be. In that moment, sometimes it's frustrating and it's hard, and we say, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? I prayed about it, and if you would have just answered it a year ago, life, I could think of a million ways life would be better. But here I am, I'm not even sure I believe what I believe anymore. In the midst of that, we see Zechariah praying, but even when he gets his prayer answered, his response is mixed with doubt. This is where we live. And in the midst of all that, God shows grace. In the midst of all that, God confirms his promises. In the midst of all that, he visits his people, he redeems, he saves. In the midst of that, he doesn't leave you, he doesn't forsake you. In the midst of that, in the midst of our sin and our doubt and our unbelief, God doesn't say, well, so much for plan A. I guess I'm going to have to go to plan B, which is about 60% less than I really had hoped for your life. But Zechariah and Elizabeth enjoy God's plan A. God shows grace to them even in their doubts. What an amazing story. 
This is what I'm confident. For those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, God is the master architect and the master foreman working all things together for good. You've doubted. You've questioned. You've not really believed. Live in the story of Zechariah for a while and see God coming to his people once again. When I look at Zechariah, I also realize that in our waiting, an amazing thing happens. God, God has God-sized prerogatives. He runs the universe. So he's writing this big story of time. And it goes back from eternity past, eternity future. Big story. But in God handling the big story, no individual gets lost in the details. That's an amazing thing. Do you see that happening in this story? So what is God really doing in the first Christmas story? I mean, so we've, we've got the at the manger scene and the tip. What, what is God really doing there? This is what God is doing. He's out to make his glory known to the world. He's out so that the world would know he is God and he's a merciful God, full of compassion, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's out to redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and nation and dwell right in the middle of those people. And he'll be their God and they will be his people. This is the big things that God is doing. He's using a descendant of one nation, the nation of Israel, to accomplish salvation for the whole world. This is the big story of Christmas. This is what we go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. This is the big story of God, but in the middle of that big story. In the midst of that, there was this couple that we're introduced to, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they prayed, and their hearts have been broken. And they've desired for God to work and they've not seen it. And God cares enough, not just about the big story that he's writing, but he cares enough to get down to the individual level. He gives them a taste of what it is like when God makes all things new. They can't believe it. They name, they name their son Grace, Gracious, because of what God has done. He could have just bypassed it. He has no obligation to Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's got big things to do, save the world. But in the middle of saving the world, he's going to reach down to this couple. Why do I say that? Because surely somewhere in this room, there's a person, there's a couple, A person that feels very insignificant in the big plan of God, the big story of God. Who are you? And God's massive. And this world's massive. Maybe it's a person who's successful. But see, I mean, you can have all the money in the world, but you're not going to buy off God. Money only goes so far, right? You wonder, well, what is it all about? Or maybe you feel like you're, you're very insignificant. You're alone in this world. Maybe you feel like you're aging. Maybe you feel your weakness. Maybe you're wondering if you've just become like a footnote or an endnote. The endnotes that, uh, let's say, a few people read it, but not many people read the endnotes. And maybe that's where you've kind of relegated, this is just where I fall in the big story. I'm pretty insignificant. 
few people care about it, but friend, be encouraged by this story. So God could have, he's God, he could have marshaled a million details to accomplish it exactly how he wanted it. And he did, and this is the way he wanted to accomplish it. He's not going to give us the savior of the world without going through this, this home of Zechariah and Elizabeth and say, they matter, they matter. What's on their heart matters. And so, my friends, you matter. God will save the world but he'll visit Zechariah in just normal prayers. He'll visit Elizabeth in a way that she least expected. And I have to say, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a believer, you can rest. You can rest this Christmas in the promises of God. You can live in the story of Zechariah and trust. You can trust that he has come to keep those promises. You can endure patiently just as James tells us to. You don't have to lose heart, but he's come to make all things new. If you've not had a definitive encounter with Jesus Christ, you've never put your trust in him, you've not identified yet as a follower of Jesus, you can trust in this God who comes to save the world through a son that will go to a cross and rise from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. I think what a time of year to have a God-sized encounter. What a time of year to say, I'm not going to play religious games. I'm going to put my faith in Jesus Christ. There's something else as this story unfolds. John the Baptist has this mission. The son of Zechariah and Elizabeth has this mission. And what is his mission? To prepare the way for the Lord. We're told what the mission is. He's going to give knowledge of salvation. He's going to talk about forgiveness of sin. He's going to prepare the way so that light can be given to those who are sitting in darkness. I'd say, Christians, we have an opportunity to share the light with those who are sitting in darkness. We have an opportunity to to guide feet into the way of peace, to share a story of salvation and mercy that we've experienced. Maybe you've struggled to articulate, articulate it really well, what God has done in your heart. But we have a message that fuels not just a month, the month of December, but an entire lifetime, that God and sinners have been reconciled through the work of Jesus. Charles Wesley wrote a, a hymn. I just wanted to read it in a moment. We'll sing it together as a congregation. It says, Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us and let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart, born thy people to deliver born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. And by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Let's live in the story of Zechariah this morning and enjoy this song of Christmas. Can I ask you to bow your head? In just a moment, we'll sing. We'll sing a prayer asking the Lord to come. Surely we're praying for him to come back again. We're also praying he might come and be real to us this Christmas. Father, would you do that? As we approach you because of the invitation you've given to us, may our hearts be ready to make you room, to prepare you room. 
pray that we would not just go through motions this Christmas. We would have a deep encounter with the Savior we sing about. We ask this in his name. Amen.